Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to um, Isaiah 47. So open up your Bibles to Isaiah 47, beloved. And I want us to think about sort of what we have been seeing since um, we started in Isaiah chapter 40, right? You remember Isaiah chapter 40 was a distinct break um, in this book, right? It was kind of the close of uh, Isaiah's ministry and his contemporary, you know, his uh, ministry to his contemporaries in his day. And then when we get to chapter 40, right, the message of the prophecy of Isaiah has been primarily directed to a believing remnant and to um, a nation in exile in Babylon, right? And from Isaiah's perspective, this is a group of people that, you know, he, he's not going to know. Like, he, he doesn't personally know them. Um, the Babylonian exile is going to be long after he's dead, right? And so it's imperative that God, in his sovereign design, inspires Isaiah to write down what we've been seeing, these specific prophecies of his promise to restore the nation and to provide for them a deliverer, right? And we've seen that the deliverer in the short term, right, is Cyrus. It's, and, and, and Cyrus, the pagan king, is, is not what anybody expects. It's not what, you know, the Jewish remnant necessarily wants, okay? But Cyrus the Mede is going to be the deliverer in the short term. But the rescue of the remnant, the rescue of, of, of the of the, of the people of God, right, is really going to be accomplished by the Messiah who will be raised up from the reconstituted nation of Israel, from the, from the tribe of Judah, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, you know, deliver a remnant that is chosen by God, right? The spiritual Israel within physical Israel, right? And so the whole deliverance, the physical deliverance of the nation by Cyrus is really it's really just a, a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance that is to come, right? And so, as we, as we begin here in chapter 40, um, the se- or 47, I mean, as we come to, to 47, what, begins, what began in chapter 40 is going to start to sort of come to a close, to a climax in chapters 47 and 48. Conceptually, you know, the, the next two chapters form one large unit, and we can't do it all together in one night, but it, 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 it forms one large unit that deals with the fulfillment of the Lord's purpose to use Cyrus to free his people from captivity in Babylon. And the logic of these next two chapters basically is this. One, Babylon is doomed. Okay, that's, that's chapter 47. Babylon is doomed. And then chapter 48 is, it's time for you to get out of Dodge. Right? It's time for you to get ready to go. It's time for the exiles to leave Babylon and to set out for Jerusalem for their true home. Okay, So let's read chapter 47, and then we'll go back and reflect a little bit of what we've seen so far again about God's character, and then we'll dig into the text. Let's read it together. Look what he says here. This is, this is announcing again, really, the conquest of Babylon, the humiliation of Babylon as a nation. Look what it says. Come down and sit in the dust. O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, The Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence 
and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be a mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You're wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text, it's a sobering one. Whenever we look, Father, at depictions of your judgment, we're in awe of your majesty. We're in awe of your power. We're in awe of your righteousness and your just judgment. And Father, at least for me, I'm in awe that you are as patient as you are, that you have not brought judgment sooner. I pray that as we look at this text, Father, you will, um, you know, you'll, you'll truly deeply affect our hearts here. And we would think seriously about what we're seeing in this text and about its implications, yes, for the, the exiles in, in Isaiah's day, or, well, in, his, in Cyrus's day, but, Father, also for us in this day. Um, I pray that you'd meet with us. I pray that you'd give me unction by your Spirit to speak your word faithfully and accurately. And I pray, Lord God, that you would um, that you'd instruct the hearts and the souls of your people here tonight. Prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the thing I want us to think about. You know, throughout these prophecies that we've seen since chapter 40, sometimes in Isaiah's words and then sometimes through a thus says the Lord, we have seen the character of Yahweh very clearly, you know, described and depicted and declared to us, right? Like, like we're supposed to learn a lesson between chapters 40 and 47. And we're supposed to, to realize some things about the Lord, right? And, and, and not, you know, this isn't exhaustive, but just, I went back to chapter 40 and just kind of sketched out some things that we've seen throughout. I just want to, I want to give you this list. I want you to think about what we've seen. We've seen that He's the God of glory and of majesty that, that no one else shares in, right? 
We've seen that He is beyond our full comprehension and our full understanding, right? He's God and we are not, right? And, and as much as we can understand of Him that is all true, there remains yet much about God that we don't know, right? He's the creator of all things, right? And He's highly exalted above His creation, right? He's not part of His creation. He stands alone from His creation, right? He's omnipotent. And He does not faint or grow weary. God is never, you know, frustrated. God is never, you know, never reaches a point where He's just exhausted and can do no more. That's not God, right? He always, He strengthens and He he upholds His people by His righteous right hand. His action towards His people is always in righteousness. And He upholds His faithful. He always does. He's the God who never forsakes His people. You know, there are times in which we're tested. There are times in which we're tried. But God never abandons those who are His. Right? He just doesn't do it. We've seen that He is the God of punishment and of discipline, right? But He's also the God of grace and forgiveness and restoration, right? To those who don't deserve it. We all don't deserve it, right? We've seen Him declare Himself as the only Savior and the only Redeemer of His people, right? That He is the singular repository of all wisdom, right? We've seen that all truth is found in Him. That He is the first and the last. That He's the only rock. That He's sovereign in authority and in His power. That He does all that He does according to the counsel of His will. That He has made a determination that though His people have sinned against Him grievously, yet He will remain faithful to them in their faith lessness and he will not leave his people in captivity but he will restore them to their former promised land he will see that they're set free to rebuild the nation and the temple because through israel must come the aforepromised savior and lord jesus christ right our messiah and so in short god's without comparison like there is that that is like when we say you know lord you are god and there is no other like we're saying a mouthful, right? We're saying a mouthful. And he's not going to share his glory with another. And that becomes clear in this judgment that he declares this, this, this final judgment of national Babylon, right? That takes place here in Isaiah 47. And the picture of Babylon's humiliation and destruction, you know, as we're reading through it, and the reasons for God's vengeance against her, they're kind of familiar to us, aren't they? I mean, we read that and we go, yeah, I, I, I can track with this. And, and, and I think there's a good reason. Because here's why. And, and I've mentioned this before, and I'm just going to mention it again. While Babylon was a real physical nation, right, as we've seen, it also serves as a picture, doesn't it, of the world of men in rebellion against God? Of, of modern Babylon? Of modern spiritual Babylon, right? In Scripture, Babylon serves as the, as the, as the paradigm for fallen human pride and arrogance. It typifies the desire of, of fallen humanity to be its own God and make a name for itself, right? And to cast off all restraint and exalt itself against God, right? When we get to the book of Revelation, Babylon is made to stand as a picture of the world in rebellion to God. The seed of the Antichrist the, that's united in hatred and rejection of God, that seeks to destroy his people, that just this great, you know, Scripture says, the great whore Babylon who influences and seduces the nations with her spiritual adulteries, right? And so Babylon's a real place. 
And the judgment of it by Cyrus is, was an actual historical judgment. Led by, obviously, inspired by and directed by Almighty God. But this judgment that we're looking at also stands as a picture of the spirit of our age that you know, pollutes the nations. And so what we've got in this text is a picturesque, symbolic description of the overthrow of ancient Babylon by God through Cyrus, but also a foreshadowing of the ultimate destruction of spiritual Babylon when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in all of His power and His majesty and His glory, right? To, to inflict judgment and vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel and to bring to fruition the salvation of His people. Amen? So that's where we're at. So I want to look at this tonight, and I want to do it by breaking it down into two sections. In the first, we just see um, this, this promise of divine vengeance and humiliation that God makes, right? And then in the second, we'll look at the reasons for Babylon's impending judgment. And the reason is, is really evident in these words, okay? So let's start, first of all, with the promise of divine vengeance and humiliation. Look back at the first verse here again. Look what it says. This is God speaking, right? He says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Now, what we got in front of us right here is the, the classic study in the reversal of fortunes, okay? This is the classic study of, you know, the ultimate vanity of worldly power and arrogance and how it's like a vapor that disappears in a moment, right? You think you're on top of the world one second, and then... It's all over, right? And that's what's going on here. Babylon, the city and the, and the, and the, and the, um, and the, the empire are depicted here as being tender and delicate, right? As a virgin, as uh, a young woman of, like a young woman, let me just put it this way, of demanding and luxurious tastes, right? Like a debutante woman, you know, the kind that like just thinks they're better than everybody else. Snoot in the air, you know, everybody ought to just serve me at all costs because I'm the belle of the ball kind of thing, right? That's the, the way that Babylon is, is pictured here. This princess who has exalted herself and magnified herself above everybody else. And now she's about to be humiliated and, and abased in front of everybody, right? She's about to be just completely humiliated in front of everyone, right? She'd been held in high esteem, and and those days now have come to an end. And so rather than sitting on a throne, Babylon's committed to sit in the dust, right? Babylon is going to be humbled and deprived of its former worldly glory, all the trappings of its greatness. In fact, the words that are used next describe inescapable and thorough judgment. Okay. In fact, the language is scathing and it's disdainful. And when I was reading it, I was immediately reminded of Psalm 2, right? And you know the words of Psalm 2. It asks the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, right? And God sits in the heavens and goes, oh no, no. No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And it's not like a belly laugh. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. These words are sharp words. But look at what he says, verses 2 and 3. 
Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. This is the language of slavery, beloved. That's what this is. This is a picture of slavery and and the demeaning kind of slavery, okay? Like, this is the language of slavery and captivity, of relentless servitude and oppression, Look at it. Work at the millstones. That was considered to be the lowest form of slavery, right? There's a reason. Remember back in Judges when when, uh, Samson had his eyes put out and they put him into the mill to grind at the the millstone because that was the most most abject level of slavery imaginable. And that's the idea here. This once great princess has been reduced to the level of the slave. And this stuff, the pulling off of the veil and the stripping of the robe and the uncovering of the legs to pass through the rivers, it's a picture of being a vanquished people that are driven before, you know, the the conquering nation in captivity, right? As she once made others herself captive. In the picture of this virgin with her nakedness uncovered, being violated, okay? And disgraced, it's the fitting imagery of the appropriate judgment of Babylon who once seduced the nations by her charms. Again, it's a complete reversal of Babylon's former greatness, her finery, her place, you know, as, a, as one to be envied and exalted is over. And God's vengeance against her will be thorough. It will be complete. And there's not going to be anybody that will escape his righteous and measured wrath. In fact, I want to really point that out. It's measured wrath. The word that's used here for vengeance is a word that expresses proper proportion and equity between the offense and the retribution. So it's not God going haywire here. It's not God just losing his cool. This is God perfectly applying the judgment that fits the offense. And so Babylon's downfall is her just due, right? And so then in verse 4, look what we read. We read this exclamation, right? It seems out of place. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Now, some commentators, liberal commentators mainly, will say, well, this has got to be a later edition because it just doesn't flow with the, with the, it doesn't fit with the flow of the text, right? It's just, it just seems to come out of nowhere. It just can't be right. Uh, you know, to put it bluntly, they're wrong. All right? Just to put it bluntly, they're wrong. And, and here's why I say that. This verse is Isaiah's response to the words of the Lord. It's Isaiah receiving this message from the Lord that he's tr- transmitting to these people that are 150 years in the future. But this is his response to the great news that he's writing down. Right? It's his you know, rejoicing. It's his response to the coming fall of Babylon. And here's why. Because the coming, bless you, the coming fall of Babylon is intimately connected with the redemption of God's people by the Lord Himself. Right? And we've seen that before. The coming fall of Babylon is intimately connected with the fact that the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is the Redeemer of His people. In other words, Israel's redemption and Babylon's fall are two aspects of the same truth. One can't happen without the other. That's the point, right? And the salvation of God's people and the judgment of His enemies listen, are intimately intertwined throughout Scripture. Like, this is not a new thing in Isaiah. 
This is, this is historic throughout, you know, the entirety of the Old Testament. You see it with the Exodus. You see it in the judgment of the judges. You see it when David is consolidating the kingdom. You see it when Solomon is expanding the kingdom. Like, that's how it works, right? Salvation, redemption goes along with judgment. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. And I'll just give you one, one place where this is clearly articulated. And it's in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 1 and starting in verse 4, he's talking about their afflictions and the hardships that they've been through and, the, and the, just the, the difficulties that they have faced because they're the people of God, right? And then listen to what he says. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness. And faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. And this is what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The redemption of God's people and the judgment of those who afflict them are intimately intertwined. There's no rescue without retribution. You with me? So pick it up then in verse 5. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. To put it in the, the language of the eminent theologian, Willie Nelson. <laughs> Turn out the lights, the party's over. That's, that's the thing here, right? And why? It's because Babylon lacked any true understanding of God and therefore they lacked any true understanding of themselves. Let me, let me trace this with me, okay? They acted with no regard for God's purposes at all. The Lord was, was angry with His people, right? He was angry with His people, why? Because of their rampant sin. And so He did raise up Babylon, right? And He gave them over into their hands, a profane and a godless nation, right? And he did that for discipline. But Babylon exceeded God's calling. Meaning they showed no mercy. They showed no compassion. They showed no restraint. In fact, in their pride, they gladly afflicted the people of God and they exalted in themselves. And they saw their opportunity to afflict the people of Yahweh as a victory over Yahweh, right? They envisioned themselves as independently glorious. That they were the greatest of nations at that time by their own hand. And so therefore, because they raised themselves up, they had the right to lord it over others. And they did. 
Those words, I shall be a mistress forever. Those are key words. The word mistress there is a word that can be translated as lady or queen or, or mistress in the sense of having a parcel of servants that their only you know, existence is so that they might serve you. And Babylon had failed to lay to heart the fact that their place and their position was entirely by the hand of God. Well, how could they have known that? How could they possibly have known that? I mean, really, they, they weren't privy to you know, the, the written revelation of God. They didn't have prophets among them. How could they have possibly known this? Well, actually, they did have prophets among them. They just weren't Babylonians. They had Daniel among them. And you remember the way that Nebuchadnezzar had been humiliated and humbled by God. Remember? You remember how Daniel records that while Nebuchadnezzar was working, uh, walking on the roof of his palace, he boasted, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And no more did the words come out of his mouth than the very thing that David, Daniel said would happen as a result of his dream took place. He got driven mad by God and, quote, he was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Well, that's a guy you want to run into in a dark alley, isn't it? <laughs> Not quite. For seven years he remained that way. And then Daniel records Nebuchadnezzar's coming to himself. And what did Nebuchadnezzar say? Well, Nebuchadnezzar testifies. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then he confessed, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Right? Now you'd think the Babylonians might have gotten a clue from that. They didn't. Because some 30 or so years later, when Belshazzar is standing in for his dad, Nabonidus, who skipped town because he knew it was coming, Babylon is overcoming a night. They didn't think these, take these things to heart. They didn't consider their end. And we have outlined then for in the remainder of this chapter the actions and the attitudes that merited God's thorough judgment. Now, I want us to look at this carefully in beginning at verse 8. Just listen to what it says. And I want you to have your ears open for a particular phrase that's repeated twice. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you 
which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Hmm. Here's what's interesting in this. There are a number of things that are mentioned here that are definite reasons for God's judgment to fall upon anybody, right? First of all, they were lovers of pleasure and they were self-indulgent, okay? That we know is sin. They had, secondly, an utterly false sense of security. This sense that they were impervious to sorrow or destruction because they were just simply better than everybody else. They were thoroughly ungodly and self-satisfied. They propped themselves up with sorceries and enchantments. Their false religion that exalted and promoted their sense of destiny, right? They thought that nobody could see them. In other words, that no one could hold them to account for everything that they did, right? Babylon felt no need to acknowledge the claims or even the existence of anybody or anything other than herself. She was prideful in her wisdom. She was prideful in her knowledge. And she thought that she had power over her own future. Right? Now, all of that is offensive to the one true God, isn't it? All of that is like, man, that you better duck. Right? Like, that's, that's all foolishness that puts you in, in, in the place of divine Displeasure and judgment, right? They're all deserving of judgment. But in reality, I want you to see this. The worst offense of which all these other things are just merely the symptoms and the outworking. The real sin of Babylon was its self-deification. Right? They said in their hearts, I am and there is no one besides me. Do you see how blasphemous that is? It's a direct challenge to the Lord's identical claim, for instance, in chapter 45 and verse 5, where he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The Babylonians thought of themselves as gods, little g. And that's the mindset, beloved. That's the heart. That's the essential character of, of Babylon, both ancient and modern, isn't it? The belief that man is a god and has ultimate authority over all things. But no man is a god, right? And the Lord makes that clear in this text. In fact, look how he does. He personifies Babylon, right? As being helpless to prevent the greatest loss that a woman in the ancient Near East could possibly experience, losing her husband and her children. He says, it's going to happen to you in a day. It's an illustration to show that the nation's fall would be immediate and it would be abrupt. And they would have have no time to prepare. They wouldn't be able to stave off God's judgment by charms or incantations or any of their false religions, any of their calling upon imaginary idols and all that other garbage that they did. And there was going to be no way to buy off Cyrus. That's the idea here behind the word that's translated as atone. There'd be no opportunity for them to make a ransom payment to deliver Babylon from being subjugated in their ignorance in their self-deification in their hubris they refused to see the obvious and they remained ignorant and so ruin would swiftly come upon them it's not that they didn't they weren't warned it's not that they didn't have any idea 
It's not that they were absent any word from God. They weren't. The book of Daniel testifies to that. It's that they simply refused to listen. And then we read in verse 12, look at it. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You know what that is? That's not like an encouragement to go ahead and continue in falsehood. What that is is a taunt. It's a challenge. It's mockery. It's as though the Lord is saying, look, if you don't believe, just continue in your old ways. Continue in your foolishness. Continue in your sorcery and your imaginations. Go on, who knows? Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it'll serve you better than it has. Maybe, in fact, it'll strike Cyrus with terror and he won't invade. Go ahead. If you won't believe, continue with this. But it's all empty effort, right? It's all a waste of time. Like all of these imaginary ways that we can avoid what God clearly states in Scripture. It's just a shot in the dark. Oh, how people who set themselves against God need to see this and believe it, right? Nobody can deliver themselves from the hands of God. The problem with with Babylon was this. They'd been led astray and they had let themselves be led astray. We read verses 13 and 14. You are wearied by your many counsels. You are dragged down and exhausted and you are thoroughly, listen, you don't even know how to think straight anymore because of all the counsels that you've received. You've received so much junk and you haven't discerned what's true and what isn't. That you don't even know what to believe anymore, right? You're wearied with many counsels. He says, let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming itself is this. No fire to sit before. They can't get a clue is the idea here. Babylon, of all the ancient nations, was the one who was foremost in looking to the stars and looking to astrology more than any other nation in the ancient world. They were the ones that divided the stars, you know, into the heavens into houses, and they calculated when the stars and the planets and the moon were in favorable locations, and, you know, when it was right to do this and right to do that. They created an almanac for each month. They, in fact, named the majority of the constellations, a lot of those names which we still use. And it was all worthless garbage. It was all worthless garbage. And all their dependence on their magical sciences would just spell complete disaster, right? Think about it. When he says, the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Any of you ever read the horoscopes? I'm not trying to, to like, you know, you're not in trouble if you have. You know, I, I know that some of you, I'm not like trying to call you out. Of, I'm not going to pull out a sword and chop off your head. But if you've ever read those, like, just read them like, This is such a crock. You know, if you've ever read them, they're so vague. And so, like, you just read into it whatever you want it to be, don't you? Of course, that's why people love horoscopes. It makes them the hero all the time. It's like a fortune cookie. It's the same way, right? Gretchen and I used to laugh a long time ago. We we had an idea. It would be really cool, like, own a Chinese restaurant. And then as people were coming in, to like type up their fortunes as they were walking in, right? And like stick it in a, stick it in a little, and give it to them and watch them as they open it up and see what happened, you know? Like really bad fortunes, you know, nothing good. Like just bad stuff. But it's, <laughs> I got off track. But anyway, here's the point. These magicians and the astrologers and, 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 you know, 
They were, they were no more substantial than, than stubble before a flame. That's the whole point. And then when the fire of this trouble comes, they were going to be devoured in an instant. They were going to be unable to save themselves, let alone anybody else from the power of God's flame. In fact, here's what he's getting at. Like, look, what I'm warning you of here, this is not like a nice little fire that you warm yourself in front of at a, at a at, you know, at, oh, look, I'm in my house, I'm at my hearth. I'm... This is a raging wildfire that will consume everything in its path. And these magicians, they've got no chance to stop it. In fact, far from stopping it, they're going to come fuel for it. And he just sums up the whole thing. In these last words in verse 15, that really don't need a whole lot of interpretation at all. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There's no one to save you. It's going to be everybody for himself. And nobody's escaping. Now, the truth is, ancient Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, right? But the spirit of Babylon is still with us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Humanity organized in defiance of God. The kingdom of mere mortals in pitched battle against the kingdom of God. Foolish pitched battle against the kingdom of God, right? It's still with us. The divine indictment against ancient Babylon is actually stunningly appropriate for the Babylon of our day, isn't it? Think about it, right? The divine indictment for the maltreatment of God's people. The obsession, the indictment for the obsession with, of, with pleasure and ease. The false security. The deification of self. The foolish notion that there's nobody to whom I am accountable because nobody sees me that matters. The self-satisfaction. Their supposed wisdom and knowledge. The false belief that they can extricate themselves from any ruin or disaster that is before them according to their own wisdom and understanding, Right? We see it played out before our eyes every day in this world. The enchantments and the sorcery are manifested in spiritualism and false religions and social indoctrination, in the manipulation and the twisting of the truth, in you know just overt force and secretive and elitist groups that manu- manipulate politics and nations, in medical tyranny, in economic manipulation, in population reduction, social reconstruction, unjust warfare, on and on and on and on it goes. This collection of seemingly disparate groups, but all with the same goal in mind, who when you dig down into what you, they believe, you realize they really don't, like there are fundamental things in which they are at odds. But the one thing they're united again, again is, is, against, is in their hatred of God and, and their, their fury against His kingdom. I said this at Lift Camp when I was preaching on the Tower of Babel, so that'll be familiar to you guys that, that went to Lift Camp. But I want you to think about this. What is it that unites CRT climate politics, the, pli- the pride movement, abortion, radical feminism, euthanasia, transgenderism, global governance, and the stampede to a tyrannical one-world government and the like. What is it that unites them all? And the answer is, they're competing with God's authority as creator and sovereign Lord. They're saying, you're not God, we are. All of them put man in God's place to define what he has already defined. Who defines marriage? God does, because he created it. Right? Who defines how many genders there are? 
Who defines how many races there are? Who said to us, be fruitful and multiply? And who has provided enough food for every mouth on the planet if we would get out of the way? Who controls the weather? Who promises that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, cold and heat summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease? God does. Who, who, who gets to say when life begins? God does, because he's the author of it. Who's made from every man, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God? God has. Who gets to define the ultimate destiny of the world? God does. The truth is this. It's not, the truth is not that the planet has not ended yet because we haven't destroyed it yet, but that the planet hasn't ended yet because God's not done with it yet. Right? It's in God's hands. Who defines the way of salvation? Who defines righteousness and morality? Who holds every personal accountable? And to what standard are they held? God and God's, right? The spirit of Babylon is, man, it is everywhere in our world. And if you've got eyes to see it, it sticks out like a sore thumb, right? It's like that meme of that dude with the, with the glasses that when he doesn't have the glasses on, he looks at everybody and they seem normal and then he puts the glasses on and all he sees is zombies, right? When you're looking through the grid of the, world of, of the Word of God, you see spiritual Babylon sticking out like a sore thumb. What unites fallen humanity is their pride in their rebellion and competing with God for authority and making themselves gods rather than humbling themselves before the only God. Babylon's alive and well in our own day. But you know what? Judgment's coming. In one day. And the only rescue is to come out of Babylon. To come out. To come out of Babylon and under the only God who can save. Period. Thoughts, comments. We got about three or four minutes. Anybody? <laughs> yeah. Yep. In fact, when you read Revelation 18, a lot of the verbiage in there is directly from Isaiah, isn't it? You read it, and you go, "Oh, yeah, uh huh." Yeah, I was going to read that tonight, but I thought if I read Revelation 18, I'd just be reading Isaiah 47 all over again. You know, but yeah, you're right. This is, this is the picture. You know, the, in spiritual Babylon, in Revelation 18, destroyed by the mighty God. Amen. Males? I was, just th- I was just thinking that the ultimate example of when, you know, on the two sides there's retribution and judgment along with salvation and rescue at the cross when right. you know um, in Colossians 2 where it just says this he said just about the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities <coughs> and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him you know yeah. so there was at the same time our rescue was the judgment of Satan mm-hmm. you know? And our rescue is the judgment of our sins. Also. Yeah. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Mark, you pray for us, brother. Father God, we thank you for this time.
God did is a joy to hear even, even this because it's a reflection of your holiness. It's a sober reminder to us. It's an encouragement that you will have your way. You will deal with sin. You will deal with those that put themselves in a position of enmity with you. But most of all, you will preserve your remnant. Yep. And just uh, help us to be focused. Help us to be loyal to you. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to live in the constraints that you have placed before us, Father. Help us to be um, believers who are worthy of the memory of our Savior Jesus. And again, this is these are stark and serious words, but they are glorious. Because it's a reflection of your character, Father, and to know and to see and to learn. Yeah. But you don't think and you don't act like a human being. Nothing catches you off guard. You don't act in haste. You don't act impulsively. Um, it is a great comfort to have yeah. you change. Amen. And we, your people, are just somewhere north of grateful yeah. to be preserved out of this. This Babylon that we live in, it is wicked. Just as wicked as it's ever been and nothing has changed, Father. So I just pray you would get maximum glory over all those who would set themselves up in opposition and be your enemy in your time, in your way, saving those that you can pull back from the fire, always, always to the end, and use us as lights, use us as instruments, use us as a pencil in your hand to accomplish your will and to share the glory that Christ has given us through the cross with those that are, that are lost and dying, Father, and we should view everybody as considered they can be saved because it's your work, your sovereignty, the Holy Spirit. We are just the instruments. That's right. Thank you for this lesson tonight, Father. Let it sink deep into our hearts. Help us help it to be a reminder of the urgency of the times that we live in right now. Yeah. It is Babylon, pure and simple. There's nothing new about this. Uh, so save us, preserve us, and secure us, Father, in your way. It's perfect. Amen.